Please keep your Bibles open at Psalm 95 as we look at this together. What is worship? What is worship? For centuries, many traditional Presbyterians have focused on church services being worship. And the minister would often begin with the words, let us now worship God. Sadly, though, that implied that we weren't worshipping God earlier. I believe that that language has devalued our worship in all of life. Presbyterians have also been called the frozen chosen. And so often the scene in Prezi churches is quiet, super reserved, lacking emotion, whether it's grief for sin or great joy. Should it be like that? For others, they hear worship and they think singing. Singing led by worship leaders. And and for many, that praise and worship services become all about emotions and, and feeling the presence of God. Melbourne is filled with churches like that. Matt Redman, the singer and songwriter, wrote 20 years ago, no amount of striving and hyping can communicate real worship. No amount of good musicianship or skillful arrangements will compensate for God withholding his presence. One, One trend which increasingly worries me is the whole performance thing. Praise is a contradiction of pride. Pride says, look at me. Praise longs for people to look at Jesus. Today we're thinking about what worship involves, who God is, and how we should respond to him. And maybe we'll all be challenged and pushed out of our comfort zone, but I hope it's for our good and for God's glory. Psalm begins, Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. Our first point is worship God with loud praise, for he is great. Notice the responses called for in verse 1 and 2. We're invited to shout joyfully. Literally, it means loud, joyful singing. And we're asked twice to shout triumphantly or shout aloud. Includes that singing aloud with thankfulness. That's what we're asked to do. The Presbyterian Church has its roots in the Church of Scotland and the Reformation before that. And being British and having British heritage myself, being emotionally reserved and controlled is very cultural. But are we Prezies too reserved? We love our theology and the word of God. We like good order. But are we too emotionally reserved? I think so. I mean, with verse 1 and 2, it describes unashamed enthusiasm, celebration, joy. And now it's not promoting a forced cheerfulness or an emotional manipulation like you might have experienced at another church. But does it rebuke you? Does me? In our services, when we sing a song of joyful praise from up the front, I see too little expressed joy and displayed thankfulness. I don't see much clapping or hand-raising or even loud, joyful singing. And yet... Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all you peoples. 
shouts to God with a jubilant cry. Psalm 63 says, I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. I'm not saying that you have to raise your hands or sing joyfully if you don't feel like it. But if you do feel like it and it's not disturbing others, then please do. Feel free to do it. And we encourage loud and joyful singing, even if your voice isn't great or you sing out of tone. Doesn't matter. Some of the emotions, when they're genuine, that we see charismatic believers displaying, they are consistent with what we read in Scripture, like here in Psalm 95. So I hope and pray that when we've been saved by the good news of Jesus, that it will result in loud, joyful singing at Bundy. Why sing? Why sing loudly, joyfully? Look, verse 3, 4, the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He's, He's greater than idols. He's greater than the whole world. He's the creator and the owner. He rules the mountains and the valleys, the sea and the land which he made. In 2018, my family had the opportunity to go to the French Alps and to the tallest mountain there. We were up at 12,000 feet at a height that planes fly, and it was amazing. I was literally breathless, and yet it moved me to praise. And no, the photo doesn't do it justice. But I thought, God, you made this, and you are greater than these mammoth mountains was awe-inspiring. It filled me with praise for the God who made them. Our God is great. And Colossians chapter 1 says that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, it says everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, everything in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's for his glory. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is great and he is glorious and he rules and we ought to sing to him loudly and joyfully too. So how do you want to respond to what you're asked to do in verses 1 to 3? How do you want to respond? How should we respond as a church? 50 years ago, choirs led the church in singing, supported by loud organs, and they often drowned out the congregation singing. Now, song leaders, what some inaccurately call worship leaders, they focus on performing, and the band often drowns out the congregation singing. We seek not to do that at Bundy. Worshipping God in song as his gathered people, as we do today in corporate worship, it is special. And so when we sing our final song today, I hope to hear your loud and joyful voices as we sing to our great creator and king. Next, we're asked to worship God with body and heart. 
God, he cares. Verse 6, let's worship, bow down, and kneel. But the word for worship also means bow down. So we actually have three words saying that we should all get low before God. I've been to churches where at certain times in the service you're asked to kneel. I'm not going to ask you to do that. And if you have bad knees, you might be thankful. I suggest it shouldn't be forced or obligated, and not just because we don't have pews with nice kneeling cushions, but because we don't want our worship of God to be forced or fake or hypocritical. When Jesus, in Matthew 15, he rebuked the Pharisees, he quoted scripture at them and said, this people honours me with their lips, their hearts is far from me. They worship me in vain with teaching as doctrines, human commands, teaching human commands as if they were commands of God. So I ask, do you need to repent of fake worship or half-hearted worship? The word worship is never defined in Scripture, but it is about highlighting God's worth. His weight, his greatness. It's about giving God reverence and service and submission, bowing before him, honouring him, praising him, obeying him. As I said, often the Hebrew words for bow down can also be translated as worship like it is here. And what is on our heart? What's in our heart is central. Bowing before God in our hearts, submitting to him. So I ask, are you doing that? Is he ruler over your heart? And yet we don't want to ignore what we do with our bodies. If we, if I kneel to pray, it communicates something to my heart and mind. Our posture, someone said to me during the week, our posture affects our mood. Physically kneeling reminds me that God is God, I'm under him, And he deserves to have me submit to him. In the New Testament, we're never commanded to kneel. And yet, when people came up to Jesus seeking, pleading for his help, they often knelt. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that one day when Jesus returns, every knee will bow before him at the name of Jesus. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, they tell us of elders and Creatures in heaven falling down before the Lamb of God, Jesus. So we should never think that that bowing low in worship is beyond us. If we do it in church or in public, we need to be careful, guard our hearts, or we can easily do things for show. But bowing or kneeling in private is most appropriate. A heart that wants to acknowledge God's worth will be expressed with our bodies. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we're told, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Bodies, the word bodies here does refer to all of our life. 
and yet it includes our physical bodies being offered to God in service and in worship of him. And, and we're told there it's to be a response to what he's already done mercifully for us in Christ. Writer John Stott says, No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Sam Alberry, who'll be speaking at the single-minded conference we mentioned earlier, he wrote this book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. It's excellent. And he says, in the Bible, we read of people lifting up their hands in prayer, raising their eyes in expectation, or lowering them in contrition. We see David sitting to pray, Paul kneeling to pray, John prostrating himself with his face to the ground. No one posture is prescribed, that means commanded. But it goes to show that prayer is not a matter of bodily indifference. Our posture can express or encourage the appropriate posture of the heart. Same goes for our corporate worship. Again, Sam says, much of my experience has been shaped by a culturally conservative English lack of expressiveness. We're meant to sing with enthusiasm and joy, but the unwritten rule is that while our hearts, minds and mouths are engaged, our bodies aren't, other than the fact that we stand to sing. In culturally conservative, inexpressive England, men still go down on one knee to propose. Asking for someone's hand in marriage is formal. It really matters. It's a sign of deference, of humility, of the worthiness of the one being asked and a lack of presumption on the one asking. If a man asked with his hands in his pockets, well, something would be seriously off, wouldn't it? The posture is meant to match the heart. If we wouldn't keep our hands in our pockets at a football game, then it seems incongruous, boggling that might mean, to do so at church. People from similar backgrounds to mine do well to reflect on the fact that corporate worship in the Bible is far more physically expressive than the worship in our own churches tends to be, in quotes. And I agree. How does God want you to respond? And why? Why is God worthy of our worship and our bowing and our submitting? We're told, verse 6, for he is our maker. And that was true for David and the Israelites. It's true for us. So God isn't just the creator of mankind generically. He didn't just make Adam and Eve. He, he made you. He made me. He's our God. And he's our God because he made us and he has saved us. He's the rock of our salvation who's drawn us into relationship with himself. He saved Israel from slavery in Egypt and he brought them to himself at Mount Sinai and then into the promised land. But God has forever saved all of his people through his son. 
So if we have put our trust in Jesus, then we're, we've been brought, we are brought into relationship with God. And Jesus is our Lord. He is our God. In the words of verse 7, he's, he's our shepherd. As verse 7 describes. And remember a few weeks ago in Psalm 23, he's our shepherd. He's the one who will provide us with what we need. We are the sheep under his care. Verse 7, that, in that, that literally is, we're the sheep in his hand. He's got us. And if we've trusted in Jesus to save us, then the God who made us, who rules the world, is our God and he cares. He cares for you, Christian. And that gives us our, our identity and our sense of belonging. A movie I really like is The Blind Side. Michael is a homeless and traumatized boy on a dangerous path until Leanne and her husband Sean take him in. It's based on a true story. And more than becoming a star American footballer, he eventually is adopted by them. That's what Michael also chooses. At one point, Leanne says, we were wondering if you'd like to become part of this family. Michael responds, I kind of thought I already was. Because he'd been loved, welcomed, included. Michael, in a wonderful and life-transforming way, he found a sense of belonging, a new identity, a new family where he was loved and cared for. Or maybe you haven't seen that. Maybe you can think of the Annie, the orphan who finds parents who love her. You see, better than that, better than either of those stories, in Christ we find a Father God who loves and cares for us. So we really can say and we can know that you are our God. You are my God. And in a world that is crying out, for a sense of purpose, we have a message about community and identity. We have a message that we can speak with others about where they can find true meaning and belonging and direction. It's a true, this, this meaning and belonging and identity, it's true and it's deep and it's forever because it comes from God and he gives it to us through his son Jesus. He, Jesus, is the Lord and the Saviour worth living for, worth giving your heart to. He's the Lord and Saviour worth speaking to others about. He's the one worthy of our worship. He's the God who deserves our trust and obedience. And that's our third point. Worship God with your trust for he saves and judges. In verse 7, there's a real change of tone here. And the psalmist goes super serious. End of verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did at Meribah, at Massah, in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and tried me, though they had seen what I did. The Israelites, they'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, crying out for God to rescue them, and he does through Moses. 
And those Israelites, they saw their firstborn sons spared, while the, Israelite, the, the Egyptian sons weren't. Their sons were spared because of the sacrificed Passover lamb. They saw God part the waters of the Red Sea so they could walk through on dry ground. They saw God provide water and meat in the deserts and manna bread every day appear on the ground for them to eat. And then in Exodus 17, which we read, they still grumble and complain again. The word massa means complaining or quarreling. Meribah means testing because they put God to the test instead of humbly asking for water, trusting in their God. And so these place names were famous to them, famous for faithlessness and rebelliousness and hard-heartedness. And God is saying through David in Psalm 95, learn from the past, learn from church history. If you, verse 7, hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. It's important to know that the Hebrew word for hear or listen also means obey. If you've heard God's word, he expects you to obey it. That's one and the same. And so what what we're also being told here is that praising God passionately, getting down on your knees in prayer is not going to save you. There's more to worship than that. Passionate praise, kneeling in prayer isn't enough. But hearing, believing, obeying God's word is what he wants. Hearing and obeying God's word is part of our worship. So worship isn't just about singing. So at Bundy, we don't call our music teams worship teams. Or we don't say, let's stand to worship. For we believe that when we are sitting, when you are sitting, hearing the word of God, listening carefully, that's part of your worship. And when you have a loving conversation after the service, that's part of your worship. When you trusted God, came to church, even when it was hard, even if you're running late, you worshipped. When in love you showed patience and kindness with someone in your car as you drove to church, instead of arguing back, you worshipped. You see, worshipping God together is important. We should prioritise our gathering together on Sunday. But Psalm 95 is teaching us that obedience to God is vital, a vital part of our worship. Verse 8 is saying, instead of hard hearts, God wants soft hearts. That is hearts that really listen to his word, are shaped by his word. Hearts, lives that will believe and obey it. What's your heart like? Verses 10 and 11 go on to speak of God's response to the Israelites in the wilderness, his response to their hard heart. In Numbers 14, the spies, they entered the edge of the, or they got to the edge of the promised land. They sent spies in to investigate. And these spies came back and reported the land is filled with great, big, strong people, huge walled cities, and said, we can't go in, except for two of them. And the Israelites would not trust, listen to, and obey God's word and go in. They wouldn't. They wouldn't go in. And so God said, all of the adults will die in the desert. They will die in the desert. 
in the words, sorry, I forgot that slide. In the words of, in, in Numbers 14 is where we are. God said, you'll all die in the desert. And when we think about that event in Numbers 14, that's what Psalm 95 verse 11 is referring to. That God, on that occasion, he swore an oath. He promised that none of those faithless, disobedient people would enter the promised land rest. For God was angry at and disgusted with them. And that's not because God just had this moment of rage and lost his cool. No. If you go home today and read through Exodus and Numbers, you cannot avoid seeing how patient God was with his people's persistent lack of faith and obedience. They disobeyed and rebelled against him over and over. He warned them and they would not listen. And so they were judged. You see, God wants worship, which is trust and obedience to his word. Trouble is, like the Israelites, we are hard-hearted and sinful. See, people don't obey God wholeheartedly. No one does. And instead of leaving us to face the judgment we deserve, God himself came to us, to earth in his son, Jesus, to save us from our stubborn selfishness, our hard hearts, our sin came in sending his son, the good shepherd. Remember, verse 7 spoke about God being a good shepherd. And then Jesus comes and he says in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. And I will lay down my life for my sheep, for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. God's grace, that includes us. And they will listen to my voice. So Jesus laid down his life so our sins could be forgiven, so we could be saved from God's just judgment and anger, and so that we could be given the Spirit who would change our hearts, so that by God's grace and by Spirit we could now have soft hearts, receptive to his word. Remember, when we trust in Jesus, we get reconciled to the God we were once separated from. He becomes our God. And now we worship God by following the good shepherd Jesus, by listening to his voice, by doing what he says. And only he can get us to the promised land rest in heaven. Psalm 95 is quoted numerous times in Hebrews 3 and 4. We don't have time now to go into it in great detail, but it's quoted there because the people that write it to the Hebrews is writing to, they are Jews who'd come to faith in Christ, the Messiah, and they were being tempted, they were tempted to turn back to Judaism. And so they were being warned not to turn away from Christ. They needed to obey God and cling to Jesus, even if it meant them suffering. And the writer quotes Psalm 95 today, when you hear his voice, or if you hear his voice, and the Hebrews, writer of the Hebrews picks up on that phrase and says to them today, when you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. And so as the writer said to the Hebrews then, it's still true for us. This is God's word to you today. And so I say today, if you hear God's voice, and you've heard it in his word right now, do not harden your heart. 
Today, you have to make a, a choice. Because it's God's word to you too. Hebrews 4 goes on to explain that the promised land Palestine rest it was a symbol of the heavenly Sabbath rest. And only those who believe will enter that rest. And so if you stop believing and trusting in and following Jesus, you will not enter God's heavenly rest. On top of that, Hebrews 4 says that if you try to get to God by your own good works, you will fail. Sorry, it's on another slide that I must have accidentally deleted. But what Hebrews 4 is saying, when you really believe and trust what Christ says, you'll do what he says. Believing and trusting will result in obedience, not disobedience. But if you turn away from Christ the Saviour, that is disobedience. And Hebrews 3 and 4 repeats over and over that unbelief and the disobedience that stems from it will mean that you miss out on salvation and you'll face judgment. So I ask, how are you going at the moment, trusting and obeying the Lord? I ask, is Jesus your Lord and Saviour? Is he ruling your life? In your heart, is he number one? Is he first? Or is there a sin that you're refusing to repent of? Or is there a part of your life where you stubbornly keep living your way? If we claim to be Christians, we'll do what he says. If we want to worship God, we will trust and obey what Christ says. So maybe today, tonight, maybe you need to get on your knees and cry out for forgiveness or cry out for God's strength and grace to live for him. See, through Psalm 95 and through Hebrews, we're all being asked, will I, will I harden my heart to Christ or will I worship him and enter God's rest? Psalm 95, it finishes without a clear conclusion. I think that's because it's inviting us, provoking us to think about how we'll respond. Will we take on board the warning or not? Psalm 95 has told us that God is the saviour and the judge. He's the creator and the king. He's the ruler and the shepherd who cares and the one who invites us to his salvation rest. So will we harden our hearts to God or believe and do what he says? Will we worship him from our hearts or not? Will we worship him with singing and submission, with trusting and obeying or not? If Christ has triumphed over your sin and judgment, then please go back and read verse 1 and 2 again and praise God. Let us praise God for his salvation. Christ, he died our death. He was cut off from the Father so that we don't have to be and so our joy is not diminished our joy should overflow. God is worthy of our worship. Our worship with our loud singing and our bodies and our hearts and our obedience, our all. Our all.
everything. In my last year at the Presbyterian Theological College 15 years ago, we went on a short-term mission trip to Malawi and Zambia in Africa. And we were there partnering with serving the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian. I met many people who knew great suffering, who were materially very poor, but who were rich in faith and had much greater faith than I did. Despite lacking food, material possessions, having good Bible teaching over years, they they often smiled in their lives and in their church services. And in their church services, they knew the joy of the Lord. And it was expressed, I'm sorry I deleted that photo too, but it was expressed in joyful singing and dancing and clapping. And their their joy in the Lord, their devotion was expressed also in them sitting attentively, listening to the word of God read and preached, even when the sermon went for an hour. Not saying that we must be like them. We can and we should express our faith in our culture and through our personality. But the worship of God includes our joyful singing and our bodies and our hearts and our lives. Let it be true for you, Christian. Let's sing joyfully to the Lord. He is a rock of our salvation. Would you pray with me now?